Hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, hopefully our, our, our Yeti will work, our microphone will work, our software will work, and, and it will not replicate uh, Germany's crash and burn in the World Cup. And <laughs> yeah. If you're listening to us, all the technology worked better than uh, the German uh, soccer club <laughs> performed at the World Cup. And that's a good thing, because we have quite a bit to talk about this week. Um, I'm going to start by talking about some test scores. Uh, we broke down the SAT scores earlier this week, uh, try to get a sense of what happened here. These are results, Kevin, as you know, that have some state officials concerned. We saw some drops on the SAT test, and we'll get into that. But you had a chance to look at it kind of district to district and how our big districts performed and small district performed. Um, what were some of your takeaways um, now that you've had a chance? These numbers have been out for a little bit. You looked through them on a district-by-district basis. What were some of the things you found? Well, one thing that I found surprising that I found uh, myself writing about a lot this week was what happened in the larger districts around the state. And, and the larger districts are, are a pretty good microcosm of the state as a whole. I mean, when you talk about the top 20 districts in terms of enrollment, you're talking about two-thirds of the kids. Yeah. So it's a pretty large sample right there. Uh, it's a pretty representative sample in terms of poverty rates, in terms of go-on rates. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a decent cross-section. So we know that the state scores dropped. We wrote about that last week. But when we were able to break down the district-level data, we found that in 18 of the 20 largest districts in the state, scores went down. Yeah. The only exceptions, uh, CUNA, Middleton, take a bow. You were the exceptions to the rule. And, and that's really kind of what we saw statewide. I mean, more drops than increases, as you would expect, if the state scores are going to decrease. Um, and, and like you say, I think, uh, I, I think there's a lot of confusion or a lot of um, you know, consternation at this point about what happened here and where do you go from here. Uh, the state has talked about that. It's talked about they want to break down these numbers and try to get a better sense of uh, what next steps the state ought to be taking, what next steps the, the districts ought to be taking. I focused in on Coeur d'Alene, uh, one of the larger districts in the state, and a district that had one of the larger drops in SAT scores. Um, and, and they're trying to figure out what happened as well. And, you know, I think there's some disappointment in the numbers up at Coeur d'Alene and a hope that some of the changes that they're making in, a, in their math curriculum will pay off, not just on the SAT, but in math education in general, because, you know, like we've talked about so many times, high school math and high school math performance is an ongoing area of concern. The SAT just illustrates that uh, a little bit further. It has been for years. We and, talked and, about the math initiative. We talked about slow math scores overall. But yeah, it's and, nothing and, and new. And it has been for years. So when a Coeur d'Alene is talking about changing its math curriculum, it's not because of the SAT scores from April. This is right. something that's been in the works for a while. The SAT scores just emphasize uh, the, the seriousness of yep. the problem. So the big districts were a surprise to me. Uh, and the widespread drops among the bigger districts was a surprise to me. Um, what wasn't a surprise, and we talk about this, it seems like every time we get a battery of test scores, but you can't emphasize it enough. Um, demographics matter. Mm -hmm. um, the top performers in the state tended to be districts and charters, especially, with 
fairly low poverty rates with maybe more affluent students and maybe more engaged parents. And that aligns with national trends and all the research that the yeah, yeah, educators have known about and studied for years. Hardly an Idaho phenomenon when we're talking about test scores and, and demographics. So not really a surprise that the top performers were some of the, the same charter schools that we've seen near the top of the list. And, you know, while those are, you know, impressive test scores, you, you do really need to think in terms of the demographics as well, especially when you look at the lower performing, you know, some of the lower performing districts, when you look at the, the schools with higher poverty rates, and in this case, we're mostly talking about uh, rural districts scattered all over the state. Those districts with high poverty rates all tended to score below the average on the SAT. So that's you know, and why is this all important? Why do we focus in so much on SAT? It's just one of those indicators uh, towards college readiness. It's one of those criteria that's used in terms of college admission, in terms of scholarship, and that all goes back to uh, the state's goal of trying to get more kids to continue their education after high school. So th this isn't just a numbers exercise for the state or for the districts. I mean, if, if the state is serious about trying to get more kids to go to college and complete college, the SAT scores are a... Uh, a like it or not, you know, you may not like a standardized test. You may not like uh, so, many, so many stakes attached to a test, but that's the reality. This is an important metric, and it is a, an important piece of that puzzle. And the legislature, Kevin, as you know, as we talked about last week, invests about a million dollars of taxpayer money every year to allow every junior in the state of Idaho to take the SAT test. They basically set aside a day in the spring each year where nothing else is going on, where juniors all across the state can take the SAT test at no cost to their family, but at a cost of a million dollars to the taxpayers of the state of Idaho. It is also a high school graduation requirement mm -hmm. in law that students have to take some sort of an SAT test. They can take the SAT, for free at no cost to their family, or they can take the a ACT or another test on their own. In many, many districts, students opt for the SAT, although not all districts. And so the, the legislature has invested in it. The state says it's important. We want to have this opportunity uh, for all of our high school juniors. Uh, and so it is something that all at all levels, uh, folks are invested in and have said is important and is a priority for the state of Idaho. Right, and I think what's important to note here with the SAT day, and this was something that uh, I hadn't thought about as much in my coverage of the SAT until this week, but I've heard it now both from the state and, and from Coeur d'Alene, is um, the state is saying that they think that the, uh, what they're seeing in the SAT score is between April, the SAT day, when, uh -huh. every, when almost every junior in the state took the test during school hours on a Tuesday. They feel like the, they're seeing a difference with students who are taking the SAT on of their own volition, paying for it, and taking the test on a Saturday. Whether they're just taking it again and the repetition is helping them, or they're just you know more motivated because they really are trying to get into uh, maybe a more uh, exclusive or prestigious college. They're seeing a difference in terms of those scores, uh, kids taking the test on a Saturday as opposed to this Tuesday SAT day. Coeur d'Alene is saying, you know, when we when we see t when we see students take the SAT on multiple occasions, they tend to do better. Well, that stands to reason. You, you've seen the test. You're more familiar with the test. You understand it. You're maybe a little bit but a little bit less nervous about the test. I mean, you know, 
way back when I was in high school, when I took the SAT twice. I, I did, you know, I did a good deal better the second time around because I felt more comfortable and, and knew this. So it, it all makes sense. Yeah, I, I had, mean, it all tracks. I had the same experience. I sure. took a test prep course. I took the SAT the first time. I did okay. I took it again. I did considerably better. And not everyone's going to have that experience, but it does sort of make sense. You've seen it. You're used to the format. You're used to the style and the time limit. And it is an undertaking. You don't just sit down and bang that thing out in 45 minutes. It is an it's undertaking. It's a grinder. It, it takes it's hours. It's stressful. Mm -hmm. I remember worrying about it all week. I remember not really sleeping the night before. Uh, it's an undertaking, and it's a lot for a young man or a young woman, 16, 17 years old, uh, to do and to focus. Um, and it's tough. It, it, it's designed so that you don't ace it, you know. Um, but uh, it, And I think it goes to what you're also seeing at the national level and, and, you know, the talk about how much weight should colleges put on the SAT. And you, you are seeing some schools get away from using the SAT or any college entrance exam as a criteria for admission and how much weight does a college put on the SAT or the ACT uh, in terms of deciding whether a student is college ready and you know is you know, is you know qualified to attend and is likely to succeed if 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 they attend so that's part of a bigger debate for a lot of reasons that we're talking about test anxiety um, you know unfamiliarity with the test what have you so I understand all of that, and, and that always kind of reflects in, you know, the way we look at this test. It, it is a snapshot. Yeah. But as a snapshot goes, when we're talking about 20,000 kids, uh, this year's snapshot was concerning to, to state educators, mm -hmm. and I think it's probably concerning at the district level as well. So we have uh, in-depth coverage of where the scores went and what it all means. I, I look at it from a statewide level. Uh, Devin Bodkin takes a closer look at the numbers in eastern Idaho. So you can check out the numbers for yourself and get a sense of what people are saying about it. Yeah, head over to IdahoEdNews.org, uh, the homepage there. If you get our newsletter on Friday morning, those are the top two stories in the newsletter this week. If you don't get our newsletter, you can sign up uh, right on the homepage and you get uh, our top stories delivered to your inbox every Friday morning, except next Friday because it'll be the 4th of July week and we're going to scale things back a little bit. But you can get our newsletter for free, get all of our top stories. All that information is available at idahoednews.org. Okay. Well, it would hardly be a week here on the Extra Credit Podcast without talking about New Plymouth. Um, Idaho Education News filed uh, a legal complaint against the New Plymouth School District uh, this week uh, regarding a, uh, their superintendent's hire. Clark, you wrote the story uh, on our behalf, so why don't you walk us through the, the crux of the issue? Just the background that you need to know. We did file uh, a civil complaint with the prosecutor's office in Jim and Payette counties on Thursday. The background that you need to know if you haven't been following this story is the district has been embroiled in turmoil all year. There was a very public clash between the former high school principal and the outgoing superintendent that played out in public. Uh, it was a bizarre story. It's been going on all year. Earlier this month, the New Plymouth School Board met on June 18th yeah. and named a new superintendent named David Satotu. He is set to take over in early July, the superintendent of the New Plymouth School District. We were caught off guard by that news that it had even happened because of 
we have some concerns that the district may have violated the open meeting law mm -hmm. when it hired the superintendent. And the open meeting law and open records laws works together to ensure that government agencies, including school districts and school boards, conduct the public business in public, in the light mm -hmm. of day, in a transparent manner. And one of the components to that is that they have to alert the public through an itemized, publicly available agenda to the business that your school board or your city council or your county commission or whoever will be undertaking. Uh, there's supposed to be an agenda published in a public space in advance of any meeting that lists an itemized schedule of business to accomplish and be voted on. And it, and it needs to be detailed enough under the law so that you or I or anybody in the public, any taxpayer, any patron of a school district can look at that agenda and say, hey, that looks interesting. I wonder what that's all about. And maybe I ought to check that out. It, you cannot just simply post an agenda that says the school board is going to meet at 6 p.m. on Monday. Uh, they're going to talk about old business, new business, executive session, and adjourn. That doesn't work. <laughs> it you doesn't work. You an itemized to. agenda listing each specific thing. And so what happened here is the agenda for the June 18th meeting uh, we got after the fact only through a public records request. And it does list an executive session, a closed-door meeting. That in itself is legal. But the reasons for listing the executive session they outlined were personnel matter, evaluation, or disciplinary issue. Then they came out of executive session and made a motion, which passed unanimously, to hire a new superintendent, did not discuss it at all, hardly, and the meeting was adjourned three mm -hmm. minutes later. Our problem is, is that the agenda did not signal to the public that they were going to consider a new superintendent hire, that they were going to discuss finalists, that they were going to discuss this. Listen, when it comes down to it, the superintendent is like the president and the CEO of the school district. This is an important hire. This is someone who is going to guide the district, ideally for years to come, be sort of the name and the face of the school district, but also be the highest paid employee of the district and maybe in the community. This is not a decision to be taken lightly or to be done under the cover of darkness. And especially in New Plymouth, with all of the controversy that has unfolded out of that district these past few months, hiring of a superintendent is an extremely important decision. And under the circumstances, you would want an abundance of transparency. You would want, uh, you would want this process to be as open and as inclusive and as transparent as you can make it. So that's the, the reason we're pursuing a, a complaint here. I mean, we've had commenters question, well, why does a news organization do this? And is a news organization, you know, are you guys just stirring the pot here? And, and that's not it at all. I mean, we're, we're trying to make sure that this process in New Plymouth and, and every district is done you know, under the letter of the law, but also under the spirit of the law so that, you know, so that we know what's going on and more, maybe more importantly, you know what's going on. You as a patron, as a taxpayer in a district, uh, know what's going on in that, uh, you know, in that community. That's what this is all about. I mean, this is a, you know, this is a public record, a public meeting issue. And public is the important word here. I mean, you know, these meetings need to be done in, in, in as transparent a way as possible. This business needs to be transpired. Bad choice of words, I guess. Or, or yeah. I'm inventing a word here. But 
this the work has to be done in a public setting so that you know people can, can you know see it and be a part of it and under, and you know and understand what's being done with their money and, and on their behalf. That's a great point, Kevin, and I think that that that's worth pointing out here. First of all, this is a civil complaint. We're not asking for someone to go to jail or be removed from the New Plymouth School Board. That's not what we're asking for uh, at all. We are not seeking a fine from the New Plymouth School Board. We talked just sort of around the office about what would be appropriate. We would like to see maybe two, three things happen. We would like to see, assuming that the prosecutor reviews this, and if they do find a violation has taken place, we would like to see two, maybe three things happen. One, a public acknowledgement from the New Plymouth School Board that this was done improperly. Two, um, to invalidate the action that was taken during the June 18th minute meeting and do it over in a public fashion where an agenda is presented in advance to the public that says, hey, coming up at this date and this time, we are going to have a discussion and potentially take action on a new superintendent hiring. The public is welcome to be there and see this take place in a transparent public fashion. Perhaps a third thing that could be beneficial would be open meeting training for the school board itself. We didn't do it to stir the pot. We don't go to sleep at night and dream up ways to antagonize public officials or school boards. But as journalists, some of our deepest held core values have to do with transparency and the public's right to know. Literally everything we do comes back to trying to inform the public about what is going on with their government, with their school, with how their taxpayer dollars are being spent. That's something that we champion. Um, we know that the New Plymouth School Board has gone through a lot uh, this year. That community has gone through a lot. They have also been subject to other complaints this year. We do know that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, uh, under, under ideal circumstances, all this would have taken place in public and it never would have gotten to this. But sometimes there needs to be a little nudge in the direction of transparency and disclosure and we're trying to provide that nudge here. And, and let's note that what we're talking about here in terms of uh, fixing this uh, problem and, and amending this and making this right, nowhere are we talking about the actual hire. It's not our place no, no, to, no, no. to say one way or the other about who the New Plymouth District has chosen to hire. That's, that's their decision. It's not our place to editorialize about the merits of that hire. I mean, I, I don't know... I don't know the uh, the you know the, their person. I don't know who they've. I don't know this person. I don't have any. It's the stake. process. It's the process. It's not the selection itself. It's the process that led up to that selection. So anyway, we wanted to make sure that you understood why we were doing this, and you can see our uh, you can see the story and and get links to uh, our complaint and get a sense of what we're trying to uh, accomplish here. Yeah. Um, real quick, I want to talk about why we're recording the podcast live Friday morning at our office and not out at the political conventions. We had planned earlier this week uh, to provide live coverage of both the Republican uh, convention in Pocatello and the Democratic convention in Caldwell, uh, but sort of life got in the way. And we had to make a difficult decision long about Wednesday, Thursday of this week. The first thing that happened was uh, our Eastern Idaho reporter's schedule got a little backwards and wasn't able to cover 
uh, Brad Little's appearance the way that we wanted to in Pocatello. Uh, that and was we the also first know thing. now that Sherry Barr is not planning to appear. And we know that Sherry Barr is not planning to appear. So we were not going to be able to have the kind of coverage that um, ideally we could have had out of the Republican convention. On top of that, you got very sick earlier this week and missed a couple of days out ill. And so we did not think that it would be fair to send me to report multiple dispatches from the Democratic convention in Caldwell and not cover the Republican convention with equal time in equal space. And so we made a decision not to cover any of the conventions until after the fact. We will kind of aggregate and wrap up and put things into context based on existing reporting from our colleagues in the field. If you are interested in what's happening at the conventions in real time, uh, some of the people you can follow are Seth O'Gilvie from Idaho Reports, who is with the Democrats. Melissa Davlin and Kimberly Cruzy uh, are covering the Republicans. Uh, Brian Clark, I think, is covering the Republicans mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I'm pretty sure Betsy Russell will be covering the Democratic convention yeah. in Caldwell. And what I will do on my blog is I'll aggregate uh, the best coverage that I'm seeing, the most salient coverage that, that we're seeing. And so we will have it on our page as the weekend unfolds, and we'll, we'll, we'll cover it that way. Conventions are a tricky thing to cover. Yeah. And, you know, maybe take a step back from, you know, the logistics of this week. Uh, you and I both spent time at the conventions in 2014. You were at the infamous Republican convention in Moscow yeah. that uh, broke down with uh, basically no platform agreed upon. They, uh, they undertook no business. They, they, they performed no business. A week later, the Democrats were in Moscow. Uh, I was there at that convention, and there was a lot of chortling and a lot of uh, you know, shade thrown at the Republicans about uh, their dysfunctional convention. Democratic uh, convention was pretty smooth. It was pretty amicable. It was productive in the sense that they, that they did party business and approved the platform and went home. And for all of the... The, the hubbub that surrounded those two conventions, especially the, the Republican convention, it didn't seem to resonate that much with voters five months later. So conventions are a tough thing to cover. As political junkies, uh, we're interested. And you know, as a place to network with party members, conventions are great. But in terms of news value, sometimes they are not as uh, newsy as, uh, as you might think. So for a lot of reasons, driven partly by logistics, but I think also a news judgment decision. We're going to watch what's happening at the conventions. Uh, we will have, uh, we will aggregate coverage uh, over at my blog. And as as Clark mentioned, there are a bunch of fine reporters covering these conventions. So if you want coverage in real time, uh, go to them. You guys are in good hands. I, I Before we go this week, I, I don't know that I have anything important to say but I feel like it's important to talk about the newsroom shooting in Maryland. Mm -hmm. um, I, I haven't really been able to wrap my arms around it. Um, it's, it's obviously something that everything that happened is not known definitively. But we were talking before we turned the microphone on about how it affected us and what we were thinking. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the thing that I'm most proud of is that the Capitol Gazette staff and the Baltimore Sun put out newspapers this morning. Yeah and covered dispassionately what happened. And, and I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen the news coverage or are familiar with what happened, but reporters were literally hiding under their desks, 
um, while their colleagues were being shot and killed. Um, and it was just terrifying stuff. And it's things, you know, we've seen mass shootings before. Unfortunately, mass shootings in school settings have been a reality. Um, a recurring reality. A, a recurring reality and, and a terrible nightmare. Um, but I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what happened in Maryland and, and how we're thinking. Maybe it's just a therapeutic thing for me to go through, but um, I, I can't even imagine uh, what that was like. I can't imagine what any shooting anywhere, regardless of the setting or context, um, would be like. But I wanted to I, talk about I, it, Kevin. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm struck by several things here. First and foremost, uh, the, the courage and the tenacity of the reporters to, to do their job and to put out a paper today and to continue to, to, to do what they do. I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of that kind of dedication and that kind of courage. I, I don't know where that comes from, and I don't know, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know what I would have been doing in a situation like that, but to, 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 to perform under those circumstances is, it's, I'm kind of speechless. You know, I think this hits every news news reporter to some level because newsrooms and news organizations, uh, as dysfunctional as they can be, sometimes they are families, and uh, you you get to know the people that you work with and work alongside. Um, yeah, it, it's you, know, you mentioned school shootings. It's it's a lot of the same thing. It's not just a workplace. It, it, it is a family. It is a a, a circle in in the life of every reporter. So when this happens, I mean, it's, it, it hits very close to home. And, you know, as we're hearing details about, you know, the shooter and his possible motives, it sounds like, you know, the, the, the suspect had issues with the paper from past coverage. And I can tell you, and I think any journalist will tell you, it's part of the job. Sometimes you deal with people who are just irate, who are not rational, who have this, you know, unhinged and, and unreasonable wrath towards uh, a newspaper or a news site, in our case, or a TV or radio station. That's part of the reality of, of dealing with, you know, of working in journalism. It always has been, but this is really a, a chilling illustration of that and you know you know and i and i tweeted about this yesterday and i'll i'll you know i'll stop here at, at this point is you know we're in a time now where uh, the rhetoric about journalism and about journalists has become really ugly and i i would hope that you know you know i would hope that we can kind of step back from that as a country and you know treat journalists as people and, you know, hold us accountable. When we screw something up, call me, yeah. email me, text me. You know, we want to get this right. We want to do right by, by readers. We want to do right by taxpayers. You know, we, we want to get it done right. But the rhetoric, um, and I'm not saying the rhetoric caused this person to do what, what he is accused of doing. But this rhetoric doesn't help. It makes the, the job that much less safe for everybody to perform. So, you know, I hope something like that comes out of this 
horrible event, but you know, right now, I mean, you know, I sit here saddened, but I also sit here inspired. I mean, what they're doing in Annapolis is, you know, is exemplary. It's courageous. It's it, you know, it, it leaves me kind of speechless. It does, and I'm not trying to say that this newsroom shooting was any more tragic than any other shooting. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. But there's sort of an immediacy. It just happened. There's sort of an immediacy for us, and, and I just thought it would be healthy to talk with you about it right. and to process my feelings about it. We've got and, a big societal issue about mass shootings in this country, and right. I, I'm, I'll keep a lot of my opinions about that to, to myself here, but, you know, this didn't just happen yesterday. I mean, the problem and, and the, the tragedy of mass shootings, any teacher uh, has probably thought about it. Any, any parent who sends a kid to school has probably thought about it and thought about the unthinkable and what, you know, how it might affect a school. Yeah. So now we're dealing with it uh, as journalists as well. So it, it's, it's a huge problem. Um, we could spend another hour or so talking about it and not solve it. But uh, we did want to, you know, you know, talk about the events of, of Thursday and try to you know, share our thoughts about it a little bit and, 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 and kind of decompress about it, too, I guess. I, it, selfishly, it is therapeutic for me, and I just decided to do it while we had the microphone on. I thought, I, I don't know what I thought would happen, but I guess the things that I'm most inspired by are that the Capitol Gazette staff and the Baltimore Sun put out papers today that they covered this um, despite the fact that some of those people had worked together for 25 years mm -hmm. in a small office, worked alongside each other every single day, and, and, and they wrote, uh, you know, they had, they had full coverage of it uh, this morning, and that just breaks my heart. One thing I really liked about how the Capitol Gazette in particular covered it is they had long tributes to each of the victims, and they celebrated the victim or yeah, they celebrated the victims more than right. speculating about the suspect or, or that. And, and I liked that, um, but I don't you know. Really got a sense of the personalities. Yeah. I mean, as a former, it was a tribute. A, it was a it was a very touching and moving tribute. I mean, as a former editorial page editor, I had a soft spot for the profile of the editorial page editor who was who was killed on Thursday, and all of his kind of personality quirks and all of his kind of you know, you know. It, it's a great story. It's a great human interest story, and I'm not going to spoil it except to say find it and read it and, and read all of these uh, personal stories because, you know, we're not going to come up with a solution on this podcast to this national problem of mass shootings, but maybe part of the solution is in just remembering victims are people, whether we're talking about, in this case, journalists or whether we're talking about, you know, teachers or students or, or school staff when it happens and sadly, it happens way too often in schools. These are people. And I think in the aftermath of something that's terrible, you need to re remember the people and recognize and honor them. And, and I, thought the, I thought they did a wonderful job of that. So, so find that. Drop yeah. what you're doing after this podcast and, and find those stories. That, that's a great message. Um, the rhetoric, I mean, it, I can't solve it, but it, it's not funny to joke about a journalist being an enemy combatant. It's not funny to joke about assaulting a journalist. It's not funny to joke about shooting up a school or, or making a threat to your school. 
but the rhetoric just overall concerns me. But your message is great. It's people at the end of the day. Think about people. Seek out the stories of the victims, whether it's this shooting in particular or any of them. But remember, at the end of the day, it's people. And it's not funny. It's not cool to joke about assaulting a journalist or killing a journalist or anybody. Just like it's never been cool and certainly isn't in this day and age to, you know, joke about shooting up a school. No. I mean, that's why these threats are taken seriously and are, and are taken as threats. Unfortunately, that's the world in which we live. And we saw, and we're going to turn it off here in just a minute, but we saw the Idaho legislature uh, and, and law enforcement respond earlier this year to the issue of threats made on social media and outside of school to say that, hey, talking about it, joking about it, posting about it is something that we're going to crack down on. Uh, so that was something that we saw happen in, in the in the legislative arena uh, around our public schools. But uh, just please remember that it's people at the end of the day. And, and you can disagree with coverage or with a particular journalist or how you were treated in an article. Uh, but it's it's people at the end of the day. And, and go to the Capitol Gazette and, and, and read the profiles uh, that they wrote to honor their colleagues after what they went through. I mean, I can't even imagine. But I, I, I salute them for putting out the paper and my heart goes out to them. Um, well said. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much um, for indulging us. I, I didn't know what we were going to say or how it would turn out. I just thought it would be helpful to me uh, to turn on the microphone and talk about it. You have been out of the office yesterday, and so we haven't been able to talk about it amongst ourselves or to process what we're feeling. Um, and so thank you for indulging us. Uh, and thank you, as always, every week uh, for joining us on Extra Credit. We do have a lot of fun. Um, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, and we enjoy uh, you know, breaking down, I always talk about the intersection of, of politics and policy, but we love telling you about what's going on in your schools and what your politicians are up to. And, and we love holding people accountable and trying to push, sometimes aggressively push, for um, disclosure and transparency. And so thank you for coming and, on that and journey with us. And why we do what we do. Because yeah. we've, we've talked a lot about the role of journalists today. And, you know, hopefully if you listen to the podcast, you know that this is a chance for us to talk about not just the stories of the week, but with the process and what we're thinking thinking as we're doing what we do here. So a lot we wind up getting to this week yeah. and uh, a lot to kind of decompress uh, about. Um, we're going to we be off be, next we week. We will not be here next week because of the 4th of July holiday and you will be on vacation the following week. Yeah. So come back to the Extra Credit Podcast in two weeks. I will have a mystery guest or guests to be determined. Uh, I will not be talking to myself for a half an hour, so that's good. So come back in two weeks. We'll have more to talk about, and the two of us will be back together in three weeks for another edition of Extra Credit. Thanks so much for joining us. Have an awesome weekend. Have a great 4th of July. I hope you get to spend it with your friends and family and just have a lot of fun, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. Thank you so much. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.